Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies. I'm Ian Shin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Mark Padungpat about his new book, Flavors of Empire, Food and the Making of Thai America, published in 2017 by the University of California Press. Mark is an assistant professor of Asian and Asian American Studies and Interdisciplinary Studies at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and he recently added the title of Director of Asian American Studies at UNLV. Mark. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ian. It's great to to have you and to talk to you today. Um, Mark, I wonder if you could start the conversation today uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I'm a I'm a second generation Thai American. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I uh, grew up in the the East San Fernando Valley, and uh, did my undergrad at the University of Oregon. Uh, double majored in ethnic studies and history. And then earned my PhD in American Studies and Ethnicity at USC, the University of Southern California. Did you want me to talk a little bit about? So I'm uh, sorry. Did you want me to talk a little bit about the book, how I came to the project? <laughs> no, let's. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear a little. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, your background. You actually outline it, um, I think, in a really beautifully personal way in the conclusion. Uh, not to jump right to the end. Uh, but you talk about some of the ways in which your experiences growing up uh, in, I believe, in Pacoima, right, um, which is a working class Latino suburb in the 1980s, um, how that actually uh, fueled some of your interest uh, in this topic. So, so what was that? What was that experience like? And, and, and sort of how do you think about your, uh, um, you know, uh, growing up in that area? And how, the, how does that personal connection feed into your project? Yeah, I mean, the, the project was, you know, I, I think... Uh, in a number of, of different ways, it was it was very personal for me. Uh, I mean, I think growing up in a working class suburb uh, in Los Angeles around uh, a largely Latino population, I think um, really shaped my identity, uh, my racial and ethnic identity uh, in a number of ways, uh, both in terms of being a second, second generation uh, immigrant uh, to the United States um, and also just trying to learn and navigate uh, American society in a multiracial, multi-ethnic setting, and I think it was, you know, it was it's it was interesting to grow up in a place where whites were the minority, um, and how that, in some ways, sort of blinded me. Right, you would think that my racial consciousness uh, would have been sort of at a high level uh, growing up in that environment, but I was really sort of colorblind growing up, thinking that uh, you know there was no kind of racial ethnic discrimination. Uh, systemic racism obviously wasn't. Um, a thing, even though we were living in the in the trenches of it, uh, and living uh, in the w- living with its consequences uh, in that neighborhood, and it wasn't until I got to the University of Oregon that all of that started making sense to me: why we were living in the same neighborhoods, uh, or and why we were living in, and why my my parents moved to Bacoima, and why we were living in that particular neighborhood. Uh, and so it, it really compelled me and pushed me to want to study my community. Uh, and my population, uh, and you know, Thai Americans uh, in in Los Angeles. Yeah. So, so 
In the conclusion, you write um, specifically about your connection to some of these institutions in the community, in the Thai community in LA, right? That um, you remember spending days at the weekend food festival at at Wat Thai, um, the the Buddhist temple in in Los Angeles. Um, So did those connections end up helping you to write the book later on when you started doing research? Were you able to uh, um, use some of the the uh, relationships that you developed uh, growing up in the area, um, or or how did how did you decide in some ways on uh, what aspects of the community to focus on, given your own personal connections to it? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the you know really the heart of uh, how, how I came to the book, right? I mean, I think uh, the funny thing is, like, I didn't want to write a book about Thai food. Uh, that <laughs> that was something that uh, was a conscious decision of mine not not to focus on Thai food. I think. When I started, you know, thinking of writing a history of, of Thai Americans while I was at Oregon, it really started when I was an undergrad uh, under uh, my mentor, Peggy Pascoe, Matt Garcia, Martin Summers, uh, Fiona Ngo. Uh, when I started really thinking about the project, I knew I wanted to write a history of my community. Uh, and I knew I wanted to focus on Wat Thai because of the connections I had there and because I knew the kind of political work that was being done uh, at Wat Thai. And... And so I wanted to to write that history, to document that history because it didn't exist. And I knew that, you know, I wanted to kind of focus on immigration, uh, these formal, informal cultural practices that were taking place at the Thai temple, all of the stuff I kind of grew up with. Right. Uh, But I knew that I didn't want to focus on food because I felt like even at the time, everything I felt like every every person the only way that they knew about Thai people was through food and that this kind of hyper invisibility of Thai food and the invisibility of Thai people was really something that I didn't want to perpetuate. Uh, even as, you know, especially when I started getting, when I got into grad school and started uh, researching and writing uh, their dissertation. And it just, I just felt like food had become a stand in for Thai people. And, you know, when I would meet people, right, like the first thing they would say when they hear that I'm Thai is, yeah, I love Thai food, as if they kind of <laughs> had me figured out uh, right away because of um, because they had some pot Thai last week, right? <laughs> like, I think that it was, it was a big reason why I wanted to avoid it. I didn't want to be, uh, I, I didn't want to perpetuate that. And also, I felt like Thai food was in some ways a distraction from real issues, Right, there were Thai immigrants, uh, a lot of whom were undocumented, who were struggling with housing, uh, labor exploitation, access to healthcare, and so part of me was just like, why, you know, why do I want to focus on food when there are so many other issues outside of food that need to be addressed, and that there's a story outside of Thai food uh, about Thai immigrants that people need to know, and so that's when, you know, I started focusing really on telling the story of Thai Americans in Los Angeles outside of food. But then I struggled. And, you know, part of part of that was because, you know, to tell the other side of the community outside of food, um, there just, you know, there weren't enough sources to do it. Uh, frankly, people kind of didn't really care about <laughs> Thais. Um, it would, you know, to, to the outside world, it's such a small, insignificant population in terms of numbers. Um, but then, you know, I, I sort of had a breakthrough moment in grad school. Uh, a number of things started happening. The Thai Community Development Center 
which I've, I volunteered at in East Hollywood, they were using Thai food and culinary tourism to spur the revitalization of Thai town. There were a number of food festivals at Thai Buddhist temples. Uh, the one I grew up with in North Hollywood, the one that's you know close to me. The, the city of Los Angeles placed a moratorium on food festivals in 2007 uh, at the Wat Thai of Los Angeles because the neighbors were complaining that the festivals were bringing parking and noise and trash and weird smells into the neighborhood. Uh, and, you know, the Thai government in, two, in the early 2000s began training and exporting Thai chefs to different parts of the world under uh, an economic development program called Thai Kitchen to the World. So just a lot of different things uh, were happening around Thai food. And then I revisited my own experiences with food and growing up with food and what it meant for me uh, in terms of offering a tangible ethnic identity, uh, especially at, at the Thai temple uh, growing up in, in Pacoima. And so I just started thinking about food as an entry point into all the issues that I originally wanted to talk about, identity formation and community, uh, immigration, labor, you know, race, gender, and class. And so I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to flip this on its head and I'm going to take America's fascination with Thai cuisine um, and address it head on. And if it's for me, the question was, you know, if it's true that Thai food has become hyper visible and Thai people are relatively invisible, how did that come to be? And how did uh, you know, these are the questions that I started asking. So, you know, why? why? How did this happen? How did Thai food become essentially a stand in for Thai people in the United States? And what were the factors that made food uh, important to Thai Americans in Los Angeles, and what what could that tell us about uh, U.S. society more broadly? So that's, you know, it, it the book stemmed from that personal connection I had with food, but it was it's a very kind of ambivalent uh, relationship that I had with Thai food. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and and I have to say, you know, it it uh, as we'll talk about uh, in a little bit, the the structure of the book, you know, sort of maps really well to you're unraveling these connections uh, to different parts of the community. I wondered before, if we, before we get into the, even the first chapter though, um, I'm curious uh, because you said when you um, were at the university of Oregon that you, I believe had double majored in American studies or ethnic studies and history. Uh, but, you know, clearly ended up uh, doing um, your PhD in American studies and ethnicity at uh, USC uh, and have written, I think what, what, most historians would agree is a is a, um, a pretty conventionally historical book. Um, so, how have you thought about your your methodology and your training uh, in terms of what uh, from American studies or ethnic studies you found helpful uh, to a historical project uh, that's focused on the second half of the twentieth century about the Thai community um, uh, in the United States, but also you know as as we'll talk about in a bit, U.S. empire in Thailand. Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing for me was that I felt like, you know, I I, I had a, a love for history. And again, I wanted to tell uh, the story the best way that I could to tell the story of, of Thai Americans in Los Angeles. Um, but I also felt like a lot of the stuff I was reading at the time, uh, a lot of history books um, that I was reading on, on Asian Americans uh, sort of treated race as uh, a kind of fixed thing, right? That they, that race had already... Uh, kind of existed. And um, then, of course, you know, a number of work started coming out that you can clearly see 
you know, scholars like Naya and Shaw, uh, you can clearly see that ethnic studies was the lens in which they were trying to understand um, not just the history of uh, Chinese immigrants or Asian Americans, but also how that category came to be. And so for me, it just made sense to kind of tell the history, but to really come at it from an ethnic studies perspective, to think about intersectionality, to think about um, kind of the transnational processes of racial formation um, that, at least to, to me, I, was, I saw a lot of kind of historians um, starting to make that term, but it was still very much, you know, the identities had already been uh, for, these, for these groups were already established and that uh, their experiences were based on that kind of fixed identity as opposed to, you know, there are processes that construct uh, these identities and these communities. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's hopefully something that historians, you know, and as somebody who, who's trained as a historian, um, but very much on board with that project, I think hopefully something that will continue to inform the way the historians think about certainly the history of the United States. Um, um, but I think what's w- one of the things, and, and maybe now we'll turn uh, a little bit more squarely to the book, one of the things that, uh, you know, listeners should know is that the book, you know, touches certainly on the history of racial formation in the United States, uh, but it also does so much. And, and I think that's what really um, is exciting for us to talk about today is, you know, people have in much the same way that Americans, white Americans found, you know, a way in through Thai food, you found a way in through Thai food to a, a broad range of subjects like the history of U.S. empire, immigration, the history of metropolitan areas, specifically Los Angeles um, in the in the last half of the 20th century. So I'd love to turn maybe if we can to to the to the first chapter, um, because I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll start with, uh, we'll start outside the United States um, with U.S. Empire, Chapter 1, uh, which is uh, entitled One Night in Bangkok, um, Food and the Everyday Life of Empire. I wonder if you can tee us up uh, a little bit by talking about what U.S. imperialism in Thailand looks like in the immediate post-war period. And, and uh, based on that, right, what then is the link between U.S. empire in Asia, in Southeast Asia, and American tourism that eventually helps to introduce Americans to Thai food. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and and just to uh, to kind of highlight and underscore what you said. You know, I think w- what was really important is that you know, as I started writing the the, the book or getting deeper uh, into the writing, you know, I really found that uh, the story of Thai America um, and Thai Americans through food uh, was. You know, it made very clear that food was a sort of sim- a, a sort of stimulus and register of larger transformations in American culture and society. And so, um, you know, it allowed me to kind of really explore the Cold War U.S. intervention in Southeast Asia and specifically in Thailand. Um, you know, it vacillates sort of between uh, U.S intervention U.S. Uh, empire sort of vacillates between soft power and hard power. And so you have um, right leading up to the Vietnam War, so the 50s and 60s, uh, the United States begins to recognize Thailand as a strategic locale for um, the Cold War and communist, uh, the, the spread of communism in Southeast Asia. And so it begins to establish, the United States begins to establish a number of uh, organizations, both private uh, and government organizations. Uh, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization is uh, housed or located in Bangkok. They create a number of embassies. Uh, the Peace Corps uh, kicks off in Bangkok in the 1960s. And so you have a lot of the um, kind of 
cultural exchange programs that were the hallmarks of the Cold War period as the United States tries to, um, and the key here was really thinking about, you know, the United States trying to integrate, uh, to borrow from uh, Christina Klein, right, this Cold War global uh, imaginary of integration, right, to try to integrate Asia and Southeast Asia under uh, the American umbrella as allies uh, through cultural means, uh, cultural exchanges, language programs, student exchanges, uh, and food for me uh, was a was a key part of that in that it allowed uh, ordinary Americans and ordinary meaning you know just non uh, state officials uh, it allowed ordinary Americans and especially white women uh, to learn about Thai society, to engage with Thai people, to learn about the culture and history of Thailand in their eyes, what was the, the culture and history of Thailand uh, through food practices, uh, through cooking, through eating, through talking with uh, their Thai servants <laughs> that they hired about um, Thai food. And I'm thinking specifically of here, uh, you know, a woman uh, named Marie Wilson, who was from West Los Angeles. Uh, she was a homemaker from West Los Angeles. She, goes to Thailand, you know, in the 1950s, her husband was a Fulbright scholar. Again, part of this kind of expansion of U.S. cultural programs uh, as a Fulbright scholar in Thailand teaching English. And she goes to uh, be with her, her husband, who, who was actually at the time her fiance, but she, she goes to be with him. Uh, and during her time in Thailand, she is, you know, collecting recipes, learning how to cook Thai food. And in 1965, uh, upon returning home to Los Angeles, uh, she publishes the very first, at least on record, the very first Thai cookbook in the United States called Siamese Cookery, uh, which includes the recipes that she had collected uh, in Thailand uh, during her time there. And so uh, for, you know, for me, that sort of captures the way that American citizens uh, interacted and got to know Thailand uh, from below at the everyday level, and that that was a, a really the crucible for creating this Thai neo-colonial subject uh, during the Cold War period. The the thing that I find fascinating too is how the Thais themselves are also um, embarking on uh, certain kinds of projects related to food, right? And and this is this is a fascinating nugget um, about the creation of pad Thai as a dish in the 1940s uh, by uh, a prime minister. I think you write uh, who saw it as a way to. Uh, in fact, resist the sort of heavy Chinese influence that he saw uh, infiltrating Thai culture and Thailand. Um, so, so um, how do we square, you know, these d- different directions in which you know food is being used um, as a political project, you know, both for U.S. imperialism but also for Thai nation building um, in the in the nineteen forties, nineteen fifties? Yeah, no, um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm glad that you you brought that up because. You know, so at the time, you know, or or actually not at the time, but in the 1930s, uh, you know, Chinese migrants, Chinese immigrants had always sort of had a presence or had had, had a long presence in Thailand uh, up to that period. And under Prime Minister uh, Pibun, Pibun Songkram, uh, 
Thailand really wanted to kind of separate themselves and and, uh, distinguish themselves from the Chinese population, right? To establish a kind of Thai national identity and Pat Thai becomes uh, the, you know, the created as and established and tapped as the national Thai dish um, as a way, again, to carve out and craft this distinctly Thai identity that was separate from um, from Chinese-ness. Uh, and you see that again play out in the Cold War. So when the United States uh, is trying to sort of bring Thailand under its, um, under its camp during the Cold War period, it also uh, influences a number of Thai leaders, uh, Thai prime ministers. So Sadiq Tanarat in the 1950s and 60s um, is is cracking down on uh, kind of leftist movements in Thailand in the service of U.S. empire and imperialism, uh, and so so Thailand, you know, even even then, uh, there's a crackdown on sort of the Chinese. Um, because there's a fear that they're going to sort of spread communism in Thailand and, and it directly gets placed, uh, it gets placed directly on, on the Chinese. And so that, that creation of pot Thai kind of even gives us a glimpse into uh, the cold war period in terms of Thai's Thai national identity in relationship to, to Chinese-ness. Uh, and for, you know, the way that we can sc- sort of square that is, you know, for, for a lot of the, the American tourists that come and become fascinated with Thai food, you know, they start to mask a lot of these ethnic. Um, and that's the way that I kind of approached it, right? It's like you have this very uh, tenacious, violent um, history of repression and exclusion. And then you have these American tourists uh, who arrive in Thailand uh, and culinary tourists in particular, and they begin to render a very romantic, idealized vision of a Thailand that they wanted to believe existed, that it was a uh, multi-ethnic, diverse melting pot of Indian, uh, South Asian Indians, Chinese, um, and um, all kinds of uh, different people. And so they start to retell the history of Thailand and Thai culture in this way through food. That if we look at the food of Thailand, um, that they've been sort of combining all of these different ingredients from the Portuguese to the Chinese to uh, to Indians, that it reflects this harmony. Uh, it reflects uh, this the way that Thailand as a country has been able to bring together different kinds of people, uh, and it, it it just it just wasn't true, right? That there was a a, a violent history uh, of, again, sort of repression and exclusion. Uh, but the way that they were, the way that these uh, co- American culinary tourists were telling the story was rendering that invisible. And they had no, you know, again, it's important to remember that they had no desire to tell that story of <laughs> of uh, uh, the Thai government uh, repressing groups. But, you know, I think the effect of that was uh, to really craft and create this idea of a Thai neo-colonial, or not an ideal, uh, not the idea, but it really crafted um, 
this Thai neo-colonial subject and informed how Americans uh, back in the United States came to understand uh, Thai people. Yeah, I love uh, I love how you've sort of married those two phenomena together. Actually, it makes a lot of sense to sort of see it as a way in which uh, a much messier reality gets sort of papered over, uh, you know, through through food, uh, whether it's from uh, outside um, uh, culinary tourists or or inside, right? In terms of the repression of uh, Chinese uh, members of, of Thai society. Um, there's so much that I want to uh, talk about for each chapter, but, you know, we, we have uh, so little time. So I, I feel like, um, you know, we, maybe we can sort of progress the second chapter um, in the book, uh, which is entitled Chasing the Yum, Food Procurement and Early Thai Los Angeles. Uh, and this brings us to the United States in terms of um, uh, the immigration story uh, of Thais to the United States. And actually, maybe we can start uh, this particular part of the conversation by thinking about what you said earlier, uh, and something that I was sort of fascinated by, more of a historiographical question than anything else, but you write um, in, in uh, this chapter that Thais actually made up the largest immigrant group to the United States between 1965 and 1975, which I don't think a lot of people would understand or realize to be the case. So given, you know, even though the, the, the numbers, objectively speaking, are maybe smaller, you know, you do have during this very critical period during Cold War history, the fact that Thais are the largest immigrant group to the United States. So why, in, in, in your view, why do you think Thais as, as a group have been sort of overlooked, um, as you said earlier in our conversation, in Asian American historiography? What accounts for that invisibility in, in the intellectual accounting of uh, Asian America? Yeah, that, 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 that is an excellent question. Um, and, you know, just to add to, to what you're saying, you know, they, they were also the, uh, the most rapid immigrant uh, or, or the immigrant group that uh, immigrated most rapidly during that period as well. And so they were up there in terms of um, the not just in terms of sheer numbers, but also uh, the percentage. And in, in part, that's also because there were so few Thai uh, in, in the United States before uh, the Cold War. And so, you know, it, they, it grew rapidly by, you know, 300, 400 percent um, in that year because there were so few to begin with. Um, but in terms of your question, I mean, I think that's a, um, you know, that's an excellent one that I, I've sort of been thinking about for, for quite a while. And, and the best answer that I have for that is I think um, Thai Americans don't, uh, in Asian American historiography and in Asian American studies, we don't fit the kind of standard narrative of post-war uh, Vietnam era migration to the United States, right? We don't fall into, um, you know, you're, you're kind of, we're, we're not large enough uh, at the time to really garner enough attention as, you know, Chinese, uh, Japanese, Korean uh, immigrants. But we also don't fall into the category of Southeast Asian Americans. And there's been a number of times where, you know, I, I remember writing or contributing to a piece uh, uh, or, or contributing a piece to a journal. Uh, and one of the reviewers had mentioned, you know, uh, it was a it was a special edition on Southeast Asian Americans. And uh, one of the reviewers had mentioned that, you know, they don't really see ties as part of uh, the Southeast Asian diaspora, uh, which for me, you know, wasn't. You know, I wasn't so so much offended as I was. You know, what's the sort of intellectual or explanation or rationale for that? Um, and there's been a number of cases where, you know, I've, I've talked to community organizers who have said the same thing, right? That you know, we're organizing for Southeast Asian Americans, 
we don't really consider Thais as Southeast Asians. And so it really becomes, uh, Southeast Asian becomes obviously a, polit- a political category um, that to me encompasses and includes uh, direct victims of the Vietnam War in terms of uh, refugee populations um, and those on the receiving end of military uh, aggression. And Thais, because they were uh, allies, informal, informal sort of allies with the United States uh, at during the Cold War, uh, I just don't think Asian American historians and Asian American studies scholars really know what to do with ties. Yeah, and and I love the way that you found um, an end to this problem uh, in some ways by tying it to some of the more recent scholarship. I'm thinking about Melon Chu's book on on the good immigrants by looking at you know other folks who may not also fit uh, that that um, conventional stereotype of of who Asian American immigrants or refugees are in the post war period, um, and you you use um, uh, you introduce a couple of, of uh, phrases that are uh, some that were circulating in the Thai community, uh, like like uh, the concept of, of the Robin Hood um, as as an identity, um, and and you also then introduce uh, a new way for us to think about what they do with their lives as what you call ex-documented uh, people. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about in the context of chapter two, what are these concepts, the Robin Hood, the ex-documented, and how do they understand, how they how, how do they help us understand Thai migration during this period? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, undocumented Thais, and, and, and I'll say a little bit more about what I mean by ex-documented, uh, but undocumented and ex- ex-documented Thais who come in the 1960s and 70s are central to the story of Thai food uh, in the United States in that they are uh, the cooks and uh, the restaurant workers that make uh, the Thai restaurant industry possible. But just to backtrack, uh, in terms of Thai immigration, one of the most fascinating, thing, fascinating things that I found or aspects of Thai immigration is that the first wave of Thai immigrants were largely Thai students. Um, and they were on paper, uh, sort of middle class, urban. A lot of them were uh, Chinese, ethnic Chinese Thai, uh, and so they start coming in the late fifties, sixties. But by the late sixties, and especially in the seventies, you start to see this pattern of Thai Thais using student visas, uh, and this is sort of the link to uh, Madeline Chu's book, using student visas to enter into the United States in order to join family members and friends. And then they would just overstay their visas. And so they were, they, there was a black market <laughs> that started to develop around, um, and you needed a, an, an I-20 form uh, that colleges would grant uh, in order for you to, to come over as just one of the, one of the documents you needed. Um, but you started to see like this black market of I-20 forms um, develop in Thailand where you just had a bunch of Thai people who were like, what's the easiest way I can get to the United States? I'll just say that I'm going to go study there. Um, a lot of them were actually, uh, or, or some of them, I should say, were not well off. And so that was the other thing that I discovered, right? Is like on paper, you see Thai students as immigrants and you think, oh, they're, you know, they're very fairly well off. They have some money. They're able to come here and study. Uh, but what they were really doing was, you know, if they had to get an I-20 form in Thailand, you know, one of the requirements was to show that you had money in your bank account and that you would actually return <laughs> upon completing your studies. And so Thai people would borrow some money, put it in a bank account, print the bank statement, 
take it to the embassy, get their I-20 granted. And then before leaving, they would just pull the money out of the bank account. And so there were ways that, you know, ties were able to come under legal, valid documents. Uh, and then by the 1980s, student visas, the, the preferred <laughs> uh, valid document shifted from student visas to tourist visas. So you had uh, more ties coming under tourist visas and student visas, uh, but doing the same thing, right? Using tourist visas, entering the United States, and then overstaying and building lives here. And so, you know, I call that process, uh, or I call, I refer to those ties um, as ex-documented, because I think it's important to highlight the fact that, uh, you know, especially now, you know, in the, in, I, I believe in 2005, I, over 50% of uh, immigrants who came uh, or undocumented immigrants who entered the United States entered with valid legal documents. And so I don't think we've, you know, historically really began to unpack that and what that means uh, for identities and communities and for the experiences of people who come with valid legal documents uh, and then, you know, stay, inhabit a place, work, uh, build lives, and then, you know, overstay the terms of their of their uh, statuses, and what that actually means for uh, citizenship and belonging. Uh, and in terms of Robin Hood, that was a you know I I enjoyed seeing that <laughs> seeing that term just because uh, you know I think the for those of us who are familiar with the the, the fairy tale of Robin Hood, right? Someone uh, the a character that steals from the rich. Uh, and gives to the poor, a kind of moral, uh, uh, a character who is committing a crime, but has the heart of gold. And that is, I think, how ties came uh, to understand themselves as uh, when they began to overstay their visas. And so Rob, uh, the, the term Robin Hood refers to uh, undocumented ties living in the United States, right? They refer to themselves um, as Robin Hood's. And I think in part, in large part, because of that, because they felt like, yeah, we might be overstaying uh, the visas, we might be committing a crime, but we have a right to be here. Um, and uh, we, given the relationship between the United States and Thailand, uh, we have a right to be here and we're doing nothing wrong and we're actually contributing to to society. Yeah, the, the resourcefulness of the Thai students and, and immigrants who come to the United States during this period is beautifully laid out in this chapter. Um, and again, I wish we had time to sort of go into the details of, of really the, the, the content of this chapter, which is more about food procurement. Um, and, and you use the Bangkok Market grocery store as a case example of how Thai immigrants employ strategies of substitution and smuggling and traveling long distances in order to get the, the ingredients that they need to make the food that they want to make, uh, and then eventually, uh, you know, even sort of flourish into using free trade zones in, in Mexico to grow produce uh, and import that uh, for their for their own use. Um, and all of this just speaks to a culture of, of really innovation from below, right? This this actually to me was a, a almost a chapter of business history um, that I found really exciting because it was business history from the margins um, of of how. Uh, these businesses get run uh, and uh, in, in incredibly challenging circumstances. Um, but again, fortunately, we don't have as much time um, today to, to dig into that, uh, although uh, listeners should certainly check out that chapter if that's an interest that they have. Um, 
I, I think now we've got uh, the the interest in Thai food that's generated by culinary tourism to Thailand, which you talked about from the first chapter. We've got um, Thais in the United States now after immigrating in chapter two. So we now come to chapter three, which um, is about the restaurants themselves. And the title of chapter three is Too Hot to Handle, Restaurants and Thai American Identity. Um, so what is the story of uh, the Thai restaurant in the United States, right? It, uh, I think you lay out that in chapter three, um, it is a, uh, uh, it sort of gets started in uh, Los Angeles. That's sort of ground zero for Thai restaurants. So what is that story uh, uh, of, of the Thai restaurant in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, for, for this particular story, I was really interested in uh, thinking about the themes of, you know, what role did kind of multiculturalism play um, and how do you create a market for a cuisine, for a new cuisine um, in a place like Los Angeles and what does that process look like? Um, and I zero right in on the Thai restaurant boom in Los Angeles in the 1970s and 80s um, to talk about and to really focus on the ways that the restaurants themselves shaped uh, Thai American identity, both in terms of sort of racial and ethnic identity you know, creating novelty. How do you create novelty and distinction in a uh, marketplace, uh, in consumer culture, uh, when there are other Asian cuisines <laughs> that are popular in the city as well? Um, and so, and what, you know, what does that distinction, how do you make those distinctions? And so I focused a lot on, uh, a lot on the role of taste and flavors and smells as a way to mark racial and ethnic distinction and Thai restaurant tours chefs as well as uh, local food writers really f- hone in on the senses other than sight, human senses other than sight, smell, flavors, uh, to mark that distinction for this new cuisine. Um, and the other thing I wanted to focus on in that chapter was uh, just the, what happens inside the restaurant, both in terms of the food that's on the plate uh, and how that marks distinction and also the decor and the environment that's uh, created um, by the restaurant tours themselves, uh, and as a, again a way to kind of mark distinction and create create novelty. And more importantly, the last part of that chapter, I think for me, uh, it was really important to talk about what happens behind the kitchen door, right? What hap- What is the relationship between uh, Thai restaurant tours and the workers who work uh, in the kitchens and serve the food and cook the food, uh, and how restaurants. Thai restaurants um, became and became incubators of both a Thai American middle class uh, and a Thai American working class, and how this was fueled uh, by uh, this growing uh, consumer culture uh, in Los Angeles um, and a rising kind of multiculturalism um, as Los Angeles emerges as a global city uh, in the 1980s. So those are some of the themes that I really wanted to, to touch on in this chapter. And uh, more specifically for the, for the story of Thai restaurants, uh, you know, it starts out in, uh, you know, you have the first Thai restaurant opening uh, in 1961 in the East Hollywood, Vermont, uh, right along uh, Vermont uh, in East Hollywood. And by the 70s and 80s, you have over 50 that are that open in West Hollywood, uh, catering to this white middle class 
my white middle and upper class uh, clientele uh, and to create a market for the food. And one of the, uh, the interesting, you know, I'll point out two quick things. Uh, one of the first uh, restaurant tours is Pramot uh, Tilaka Mongkun of the Tilaka Mongkun family. He opens the Bangkok market. Uh, his son is now a, a very popular celebrity chef on Food Network. Uh, but they're one of the first families to open a Thai restaurant in um, in the West Hollywood area. And part of what Pramot did was, you know, he realized. You know, not that many people know about Thai food. He opens up his restaurant right next to uh, Fox Studios uh, on Pico and gives free food away for about a week. Anybody passing by uh, and, you know, the a lot of the workers um, and writers and those in the show business uh, that worked at Fox Studios became hooked, uh, according to uh, his son, became hooked on Thai food because they were <laughs> they were eating it for free originally. But uh, they got they got hooked. Um, and so the, there's also an element of the, or there's also, you know, a part of the chapter where I try to make a, a link between, you know, what it means to open up a restaurant in Hollywood and the, the kind of cultural cachet and trendiness that becomes, you know, Thai food becomes seen as a trend, uh, becomes hip, it becomes cool in part because there are so many celebrities that begin to eat it from the music industry, from the movie industry. Uh, Victor Sotsuk, who opens the Siamese Princess uh, in West Hollywood, in Santa Monica as well, uh, in his cookbook, uh, in newspaper articles at the time, you know, mentions, you know, never fails to mention all of the celebrities, uh, Prince, um, Harrison Ford, Madonna, uh, never fails to mention all of the celebrities that eat at, at that come to eat at his, his restaurant. Um, and so I think there is that kind of element of what allows or what helped Thai food become so popular um, is because they opened um, in uh, the Hollywood area and the kind of being associated with, uh, with show business and the glitz and glamour of Hollywood kind of helped uh, the, the growth of Thai food and, and the popularity of Thai food as well. Yeah, it's it's fascinating how it actually turned out to be quite a fortuitous um, event that that you know Thai immigrants when they uh, arrived in the United States settle in Los Angeles. Uh, I think in part you mentioned because of the number of educational institutions in the city uh, that can sustain uh, the the student population that was coming, as you said, with an I twenty form uh, to presumably to study. Uh, but but that actually you know as you said also uh, puts them in the vicinity of. Uh, Hollywood and the music industry and, and other folks who are able to lend that that cultural cachet to Thai food when it comes on the scene, uh, and that's you know a combination of factor that is fortuitous but uh, quite important to the to the historical narrative. I wanted to ask specifically about another restaurateur you hadn't um, mentioned um, because. Uh, you start off this chapter by talking about Tommy Tang, uh, who opens uh, Tommy Tang Siamese Cafe on Melrose Avenue in, in, in WeHo in West Hollywood uh, and serves things like Thai risotto and duck and arugula salad. And I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, because we've talked a lot about the ways in which um, uh, ideas about food and practices of food are, are and ingredients are flowing back and forth between Southeast Asia and the United States. Do chefs like Tommy Tang, you know, who some might say adapted or innovated on Thai cuisine, uh, uh, do their practices and ideas uh, get uh, 
re-exported or uh, re-exported to Thailand? Do, do, do you see, um, this is not, you know, uh, really, I think, part of the chapter, but I'm just curious whether there is that kind of, you know, cultural hybridity that, that uh, ends up back in Bangkok or ends up back in Thailand uh, based on what Thais are doing in the United States with Thai food. Yeah, uh, I certainly think that there was a, an element of that happening uh, in terms of Thai food culture in Thailand changing because of the kind of Thai food that was being cooked in the United States. Um, but I would argue that we really begin to see that more recently. Um, you know, even, you know, even though even even when Tommy Tang was cooking his food, he although he was getting a little he was getting a lot of pushback and a lot of criticism from the Thai community about not cooking Thai food the traditional way. We really start to see this get some gets gain some traction uh, in the early 2000s when the Thai government decides to standardize the taste of Thai food uh, under the Thai Kitchen of the World program, uh, and that's the that that was the name at the time, but it's it's changed. Uh, you know the the, the iteration the, the name has changed um, a number of times since, um, but the Thai Kitchen to the World program was a response to that, was a response to the fact that Thai people in the United States were cooking Thai food in very innovative ways. And so the Thai government decides we need to standardize taste. We need to standardize authentic Thai taste. Um, and so I, I see the that push by the Thai government um, to promote what they consider authentic Thai cuisine with a standard um, in terms of cooking and preparation methods and taste as a response to all the kind of innovation that was taking place in the United States uh, in the 80s and 90s. I wonder now if uh, one of the things we might do with the time that we have left is actually um, turn to the last two chapters and almost talk about them a little bit in in tandem, because I think one of the things that these uh, these two chapters give us is a sense of how Thai food travels beyond or exists uh, uh, beyond uh, the restaurant, uh, which is sort of the most obvious place in which one expects to encounter it. Uh, but as you talk about, um, you know, it becomes in chapter four, uh, a food festival uh, that takes place, as we've alluded to in, in our introductory uh, comments, uh, at a Thai Buddhist temple um, called uh, Wat Thai. Um, and chapter four is entitled More Than a Place of Worship, Food Festivals and Thai American Suburban Culture. But then you also talk about uh, in chapter five, the creation of Thai Town, right, which is a, a, um, uh, encompasses certainly lots of restaurants within uh, a certain area of East Hollywood, uh, but is uh, a larger uh, sort of cultural space that gets carved out to service uh, culinary tourism to a specific area in LA. So I'd love to maybe use our, our, our last uh, uh, several minutes to to talk about these two chapters together in in ways uh, that illuminate how Thai food um, then becomes a site of uh, uh, contest both with white Americans uh, who are reacting to it, but also fault lines that begin to appear between, for example, older Thais and younger Thais who uh, are the progenitors of the Thai Community Development Center. Um, so perhaps we can, uh, if you could tell us, could you tell us a little bit about um, the, the issue with Wat Thai in 1979, right? There's a food festival, um, and, and you've sort of suggested uh, earlier that there is a conflict. What is that conflict, um, and what are people so worked up about when it comes to Thai food outside of the restaurant setting? Right. Now, that, um, that's a very important question because I had sort of mentioned it um, at the beginning that in 2007, uh, the city of Los Angeles... Uh, issued a moratorium on Thai food festivals at Wat Thai, and that 
the interesting kind of, uh, I guess, entry point into this history is that one of the neighbors at the time or one of the suburban residents, um, so Wat Thai is situated right in a, in a suburban neighborhood at the end of a suburban street, uh, suburban neighborhood in, uh, in North Hollywood, sort of where North Hollywood, Sun Valley, Arlita uh, intersect. Multi, very multiracial. It was the, the neighborhood I grew up in, very multiracial uh, working class. Um, and so one of the neighbors pulls out a zoning ordinance and says, hey, look, I found this zoning ordinance in the 1980s that says you can't have Thai food festivals on the weekends. And so the city of Los Angeles um, agrees with uh, the resident and issues the moratorium. And so the story I tell in that chapter is that history from the early 1980s, really throughout the 1980s. It was, uh, you know, the battle, the conflict took place uh, over a number of years. And really what it centered on was uh, you had a, a group of suburban residents, uh, mostly white, but you had, I think, uh, a couple of Latino uh, suburbanites, uh, part of this neighborhood committee uh, as well. And they were taking issue with the fact that the Thai temple uh, had been organizing festivals, food festivals, every single weekend uh, <laughs> uh, that drew thousands of people, uh, some, yeah, you know, almost every weekend who came to listen to music, to eat food. Um, and, you know, this food at the Thai temple was some of the most, uh, what, what could be considered some of the most authentic in Los Angeles because it was catering specifically to Thais. Um, you know, the menus were written in Thai. Uh, a lot of the ingredients, um, or not just the ingredients, but a lot of the dishes um, were specifically for, um, that you couldn't find on the menu in a lot of restaurants. And so, you know, you have thousands of Thais who were coming to celebrate not just during holidays, but coming <laughs> coming to celebrate holidays, but also just coming to celebrate life <laughs> uh, at the temple um, and really using the temple as a public space, uh, as a community space. And I think that's really important to say that ties both in that neighborhood, but also around Southern California, you know, there weren't very many community spaces. Uh, and so the Thai temple becomes in uh, a physical space where they can meet and interact um, both with other ties, but also across racial and ethnic lines. And so because of that, the neighbors, it, 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 all of those activities clashed with the neighbors' own suburban ideals, right? They had moved into the neighborhood. Um, a number of them had moved into the neighborhood uh, in the 1950s and 60s and really wanted that middle-class uh, 50s suburban ideal, peace, quiet, uh, tree-lined streets, um, and this vision, the, the Thai American manifestation of suburban culture flew right in the face of a traditional and dominant notions of, uh, uh, of the suburbs that uh, the neighbors wanted to defend. And so they uh, essentially, uh, you know, took it to the zoning board, uh, to the city zoning board, and argued that the Thai temple was violating. So the Thai temple was operating on a conditional use permit. They were allowed, uh, the kind of funny thing to me is always, you know, they were allowed to uh, hold these festivals uh, and they were allowed to operate in the suburbs because temple officials promised that it was going to be a kind of uh, meditative space. It was going to be a quiet <laughs> meditative space. And I laugh because I know uh, even at the time I knew that the temple officials knew it wasn't going to be that, <laughs> uh, but this was their way to get uh, that they could operate in a suburban neighborhood. Um, and, you know, when they were granted that 
that permit, the neighbors were fine with it because they their kind of orientalist ideas of a Buddhist temple was going to be peace and quiet and monks praying and not that many people uh, showing up. And so they didn't think it was going to be an issue. Um, and so they end up going back to that conditional use permit and saying, uh, the temple needs to be the temple festivals need to be shut down because they're violating this permit. Um, they're not supposed to be having these festivals. Um, it's causing parking problems, noise, traffic. Uh, people are throwing trash and chicken skewers, uh, used chicken skewers on our lawns. Um, people are parking their cars in our driveways, uh, and so it became this huge, you know, kind of what was described by the local media as a huge culture clash that really, I think, highlighted the fact that issues of immigration, issues of race, multiculturalism were happening uh, and were increasingly taking place and playing out in in the suburbs. Yeah, I, I think it's really important. I think you said this earlier already, uh, but for listeners who may be interested in the history of cities or suburbs, um, I think I'm thinking of work that others have done like Andrew Sandoval Strauss at the University of New Mexico, that explore uh, sort of more um, distinctive immigrant uh, ideals of suburbanization and practices of suburbanization right? that, that um, um, reflect an equally valid uh, suburban experience um, that, uh, you know, uh, certainly uh, seem to go against, as you said, the sort of nostalgic 1950s model uh, of suburbanization that not only those folks think about, but I think a lot of times uh, still uh, scholars of uh, urbanism and metropolitan areas, you know, are still kind of uh, using as, uh, um, as conventions. Um, so I think this is a particularly important uh, intervention in that sense. Which brings us to, to chapter five. I think one of the things that um, perhaps uh, is a cause for the kind of conflict that happens around Wat Thai um, is that there isn't as much uh, a, a, a sort of communal uh, political center um, uh, that comes to be formed in the 1980s with the Thai Community Development Center um, and the development of Thai Town um, and, and the ways in which the Thai community actually begins to, um, uh, to cultivate the kind of political uh, leverage uh, within Los Angeles that uh, gives it um, uh, this particular area in, again, in East Hollywood. So how does Thai Town come to be and what is its significance to, uh, to your story? Yeah. So, you know, Thai Town gets established in 1999. It's a six block stretch of East Hollywood uh, from Western to uh, Normandy. So Western on the, uh, on the Western side of Hollywood Boulevard and Normandy on the Eastern side. Uh, and, it really comes to be because of, you know, the effort of the Thai Community Development Center, which was created also in the 1990s, uh, directed by uh, Chansey Martorell, who was a Thai American political activist, uh, had been, you know, organizing around Thai American issues uh, ever since she was an undergraduate at UCLA. Um, and I think the the best way to kind of think about what Thai Town means um, is, you know, in the or, or uh, a great kind of uh, entry point into it is that uh, in the 1990s, you know, when Chansey was organizing to help Thai help Thai immigrants in Los Angeles, you know, she goes, she tells a newspaper reporter, you know, that we need to start organizing around real issues, not just cultural events and food festivals. And this was before she really delved into the creation of of Thai Town, 
Um, and so I, th- I, I found that really fascinating because here you have a political activist who is really interested in improving the lives of working class, uh, poor, uh, often undocumented uh, Thai immigrants did not want to focus on food, felt like food was a distraction. But by the time Thai Town gets established in 1999, um, it sort of makes that turn uh, and becomes committed to using Thai restaurants and culinary tourism to spur revitalization of Thai Town. And so Thai Town um, is in part known as Thai Town because of the number of Thai restaurants uh, in in the neighborhood. And uh, that neighborhood uh, in the 70s and 80s was multi-ethnic, multiracial. Uh, a large number of recently arrived Thais moved to Thai Town, moved to the East Hollywood area. Um, and, you know, it was from the city's point of view, uh, you know, a, a sign of urban blight, right? That it was deteriorating. There were, uh, you know, there was drug abuse uh, and crime. And so they were really thinking about, you know, how do we revitalize uh, this area? And Thai CDC, uh, the Thai Community Development Center, uh, spearheads these efforts uh, appealing to, and this is kind of what I argue and really what I explore, right, begins to appeal to the city of Los Angeles's attempts to market and brand itself as a very cosmopolitan, uh, again, global city with ties to um, Asia and the Pacific. And, you know, I think Chanty and other members of the Thai community recognize that there is uh, a potential for uh, getting funding uh, and uh, getting investment for this redevelopment if we appeal to that sense of uh, what we might call kind of a liberal multicultural uh, approach uh, to um, to urban development. And so I think that's how kind of Thai Town comes to be. But I will say that one of the, the really interesting things about Thai Town is that it's not your typical story of urban redevelopment. Um, so there were, of course, kind of situations where Thai restaurants um, and Thais were kind of pushing out um, other kinds of businesses and marginalizing, I think would be a good word, sort of marginalizing uh, Latinos in the area and other uh, uh, recently arrived immigrants from Latin America and Central America. But they also made a concerted effort, uh, especially you know in more recent years, Chansey has also made a more concerted effort to take in uh, into consideration the ideas and wants and needs of all of the community members uh, that live in that area. And so they just created, you know, or they just established, but it had been in the making for a couple of years, a Thai town marketplace, kind of a farmer's market for the neighborhood to address issues of food insecurity. Um, and that, was developed in large part because she started listening to what all of the residents in the neighborhood wanted, as opposed to just what ties and Thai business owners wanted. So I think it's, it's, it's a little bit of a different model of uh, revitalization and redevelopment than we sort of typically think of, um, i.e. gentrification. Yeah. And it's certainly a model that, that we hope others would take up more, more actively. I think for me that the, the chapter is, is, really wonderful and how it 
sort of brings the story full circle from the culinary tourism that we talked about earlier in the 1950s um, into something that uh, that um, Thai Americans are able to, um, uh, in some ways, reappropriate, right, um, for for the development of, of Thai town um, and the economic support and resources that that generates, not just, again, as you said, for the Thai community, but also for um, other residents in the area. Um, so we've, we've come to uh, sort of the, the end of the conversation. Um, I do want to say just for listeners, uh, again, that there is so much in this book that we've only really scratched the surface. I would actually have loved to have talked a little bit more about the conclusion it offers, you know, for any graduate students who are interested in any of these fields, uh, essentially an excellent bibliographic essay. Uh, it was a great uh, sort of a reminder for me of what all the great work that's being done out there. But I think for me, the most um, important uh, part of the conclusion was a very riveting call to action that you have at the end um, about how, uh, you know, commercial foodways um, can indeed spark radical social justice-based political activism um, across racial and ethnic lines. Um, and that that's not just by uh, eating food uh, or breaking bread with each other, as you write, um, but actually realizing uh, that uh, all of this food has been shaped by uh, larger forces um, uh, things like racial formation, things like, um, uh, imperialism, uh, and that that's what's brought us into contact with some of these food cultures. Um, I'll let listeners explore that on their own. Um, but since we are, uh, coming to the end of our conversation, Mark, I wonder if you could, uh, end by telling us about what you're working on at the moment now that, uh, this book is, is done. Yeah, no, I'd love to. Um, I'm currently, uh, finishing up uh, an article right now on uh, post-World War II Asian-American suburban cultures. So thinking about um, the various kind of leisure and cultural practices of different Asian and Pacific Islander groups and, you know, who moved to the suburbs uh, in the late 20th century and how those practices allowed these communities uh, to assert a right uh, to the suburb, to assert a right to be full-fledged uh, participants in American suburban life. So really, again, thinking about that theme of um, who shapes the suburban ideal and who has control uh, and ownership of the suburban ideal and uh, the way that, you know, leisure practices and everyday practices. So not just kind of political um, and political organizations or policies um, help with this, but also the way that everyday life and everyday practices are ways to um, inhabit a space and also make claims on a space. And so I'm currently finishing up that right now, and that will be coming out um, in the Oxford Encyclopedia of American History, uh, um, hopefully soon in the next couple of months. And then uh, I'm also working on a then my next full length book project, which is on the history of uh, race and public health inspections of ethnic restaurants in the United States. And I'm going to focus specifically on Asian restaurants. Um, and so to really tell this history of, you know, we're, I think a lot of us are familiar with the narrative of ethnic food and ethnic restaurants being dirty un, you know, unclean, getting uh, uh, failing grades by uh, health inspectors uh, being forced to shut down. But I think I, I really want to unpack this story of the way that food uh, discourses of, of, of food, disease, 
immigrantness have developed over time and how that's actually really informed the way that we um, think about how we police uh, Asian uh, Asian restaurants in the United States. Um, and again, just to think about the significance of food and foodways uh, in American society as something that uh, both reflects uh, but also registers you know these kind of larger social cultural political transformations so that's kind of the next book project uh, that I'm working on uh, and finally I'm, I'm collaborating with uh, my good colleague Kanjana Teporilak uh, at Northern Illinois University on the first edited collection on, on Thai American studies so we want to put together uh, a reader on Thai American history, popular culture, uh, religion, and politics. Uh, and so I'm currently working on that as well. Well, that sounds like a lot on your plate, uh, but they all sound like fantastic projects. Uh, and, and especially as we've talked about, uh, you know, filling in the gaps as, as we make um, a more robust and, and uh, inclusive picture of what the Asian American community looks like. So I want to thank you, Mark, for being on the show today. Um, really enjoyed reading the book um, and uh, having a chance to, to talk to you about it. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm grateful for for being on the on the show. And I, I thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity. All right, take care. All right. Thank you.